The planet is heating up. The oceans are becoming filled with plastic. Change starts now. Change starts now. We're on a countdown to zero waste. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. Here's your host, Laura Nash. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Nash, and today's episode is all about outgoing compost. If you're fortunate enough to live in a municipality where food scraps are collected curbside, you may have wondered what happens to those food scraps after they're collected. Here with me today in the Syracuse Cowork Studio in upstate New York is Dale Coca. He's an expert in outgoing compost. Welcome, Dale. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Laura. So you work for an organization called Okra. So tell me about that organization. So Okra is the Onondaga County Resource Recovery Agency. It's a mouthful. That's why we call it Okra. We are the organization in our county that facilitates the proper disposal of solid waste in our county. And proper disposal is it's an evolving term. One of those things is organics. The proper disposal used to be put it in the trash, and now we are putting it into a compost system. So tell me a little bit more about your job, Dale, specifically, and what you do for Okra. My job is kind of a community educator, is a big part of my role, but also I'm helping build the local market for recycled organics, and that's namely compost and mulch. So that's a big part of my job, but also it's about educating people about proper disposal of all materials. You are responsible for the outgoing compost, so sort of finding places to put it. But can you tell us a little bit about how you bring in the compost? Yeah, so organics, as we like to call them, food scraps or other organic waste, is not required yet in New York State to be composted. So what we're getting is voluntarily, I'll say donated, but there are tipping fees for it. That's the industry term for basically, we accept your garbage or your waste for a price, and that's a tipping fee. So businesses or organizations will pay you guys to take it? Yes, they pay okra a certain fee per ton for organics, and it's about half what they would pay for regular trash. So, and that's a big incentive for them to do it. We'll get stuff from our local grocery store. We have a few grocery stores, but one of them is Wegmans, and they have food that expires. And some of it gets donated to pantries, but some of it cannot be. And so we accept that, and we turn that into compost. We also accept it from, we have four different school districts in our county that have their uh, school children separate out their food scraps, and we accept those. And there are about 7,000 kids who are separating food scraps for us. Oh my goodness, that's awesome. Yeah. That's really, I think, the key to all this is get the younger generation into it. And then when it becomes normal, I think that they will sort of be more apt to go into green jobs and take care of the planet a little bit more. Exactly. It just becomes second nature. Then they start questioning, wait, why are we putting our food in the trash? And they become those next motivators. Being in the schools is really powerful. And even into our colleges, Syracuse University here also has a food scrap collection program. So we're getting it from them, we're getting it from our hospitals, and we're getting it from food manufacturers, actually. I always wonder if there is a way of sorting out anything. So if someone puts something in a compost by accident, like, is there a way to get it or does it get put in there? 
Yeah, this is actually a big issue, and there are some municipalities, and I believe I went to Toronto, and I saw that they have curbside collection. One of the reasons, actually, despite the fact that we have a really great composting site, but we don't have curbside collection, is because of contamination, because we you know, having lots of things that are not compostable in there becomes an issue. There are ways to separate it out. We have a screening process. Every place that produces compost screens the compost. But more important than that screener, which is literally a very large cylindrical screen, more important than that is making sure that what's coming in doesn't already have contaminants in it. It shouldn't have yogurt cups in it. It shouldn't have forks, and it shouldn't have pieces of plastic wrappers and stuff like that. So making sure that we can have clean and properly separated food is really important so that the screen that we do can take out significant percentages of those contaminants. And I think in a perfect world, we wouldn't have little wraps around vegetables and fruit, and we wouldn't have stickers on fruit. Sometimes we put our produce in plastic bags, and that becomes its own issue. Plastic bags are a major issue, as you probably are highly tuned into. I don't like them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so plastic bags are a big issue for us as well. It's a little easier to identify, and we are able to reject loads. If a load of food scraps comes in and it's full of plastic bags and forks and knives, or sometimes we had one that, that came with a bunch of spray paint cans. Oh, no. You know, how does that happen? What happens is poor education at the institution where someone thought that compost bin was a trash bin, and so they just threw mm-hmm. all, the, all their trash in it, and then we have to say, sorry, we can't take this. It's full of trash. So educating people all along the way. What belongs in here, what does not Mm -hmm. is is really critical um, because you can only screen out so much and then it becomes cumbersome and expensive. Yeah, it would be very expensive to hire someone to sit there and pick through tons and tons of food waste. It's just not realistic. So it really comes down to the people who are providing it. And what you're saying about like a municipal pickup, you would have to have all of those people responsible for what goes in. And that's so difficult. Yes, it really is. And what's cool about municipal food scraps versus at home is that you can put... If you're still eating meat, you can put meat and dairy into the municipal compost system. Whereas if you're at home, you probably don't want to do that. Animals can get into it and then you have to deal with maggots and things that come with it. Now that I'm moving to the country, I am a little bit sad to lose that municipal compost pickup that I had in the city because it was just so easy. Right. The uh, municipal scale, you can take meat, you can take dairy, you can take bones, you can take basically anything that was living and it will compost down. Yeah. And your small scale stuff, you don't get high enough temperatures to break those things down. So maggots will get to the meat before it's able to break down. Mm -hmm. So we kind of know like how the food gets into the compost, obviously, and we watch it being taken away on the truck. But what happens once it arrives to you guys? So I'm glad you asked. Believe it or not, there are technological advances in composting. A traditional, modern, large-scale composting system uses what are called windrows, which are basically just long piles that are 10 to 15 feet high. And those get turned by basically a windrow turner or bucket trucks. That is the traditional way. Okra uses what's called an aerated static pile system. So we don't have to turn those piles regularly. We have our bays with air ducts underneath them that literally pump air through the bottom of the compost and that the air has to make its way all the way through the pile of compost. And that's the key ingredient in making compost is the oxygen that you get in the air. When you have a windrow system, 
the windrow turner or the bucket loader that flips the compost just adds air for just a little bit of time. And within a day, that compost pile has gone through the vast majority of the oxygen and it's back to potentially anaerobic breakdown. Whereas an aerated static pile, you can monitor how much oxygen you're putting in. You can closely manage the temperature the compost reaches. Our compost reaches 131 degrees as a minimum temperature that we maintain. We usually keep it between 131 and maybe 180 degrees, and we're able to monitor that. Like 180 degrees, you could cook things in your oven, right? So that's almost like a cooking temperature. Yeah, you could undercook things at 180 degrees. But yeah, yeah, you get, it gets really hot, too hot to touch for sure. Hmm. Too hot to touch, yeah. That's interesting. In the video, I saw some steam coming off of it mm-hmm. while it was moving, so mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. It, it is producing steam. Anytime you dig into that pile, you'll watch steam pour out for sure. So we kind of got into how food scraps are converted into compost. And then once it's converted into compost, you guys are able to sell it. And I know that you're able to sell it, I suppose, by the truckload or by bags. Yes, that's right. Yep. We sell it in bulk. And that's, of course, as you might have imagined, the way most of the volume goes out the door is through bulk sales. But we also sell it in bags. And this makes it a bit more accessible for the community to get at it. We sell it at local hardware stores. Mm-hmm. So I get this feeling that you guys are sort of reinventing the way that people buy compost instead of regular soil. This is one of the big challenges that we face is educating people on what compost is and why would I use compost? You know, I think a lot of people are familiar with the idea, oh yeah, that used to be food and now it's dirt, right? It's better than dirt. It is the organic matter in dirt. Most soil is 95% or more stone or rock or inorganic material. They say 5% organic material is like really good soil. So compost is at least 40% organic material. It's a huge difference. It's a huge difference. So adding compost to your soil makes it have all that necessary organic material. But it's, it's not just the organic material. It's also the balance of micronutrients and macronutrients that were pre-existing in the food, right? You've got your nitrogen, your phosphorus, your potassium, You've got your carbon and and also manganese and all these other really critical elements that are necessary for food and plant growth that are necessary for humans, too. It's really part of that cycle, and it's about not separating those nutrients from the ecosystem, from the, the food chain, basically. That's what we've been doing for decades is taking that food and sequestering it in landfills. And we are, by composting, putting it right back into the natural cycle of life. That's awesome. Yeah, like why should we be taking those out and putting them in plastic bags and then sending them to landfill to sit there and not be used? It's such a waste. It's crazy when you start thinking about it, right? There are other benefits because I was reading on your website that there are a few more things. So I read that it retains moisture and obviously it reduces the need for chemicals because you're giving the soil and your plants that you're going to put in it like so much nutrients. So you don't need to go buy fertilizer or chemicals and whatnot. And then you were also saying on your website that it's reducing plant disease or it's it can possibly do that. Yeah. So we'll do it in the order that you said there. Yeah, it retains water very well. The organic matter has lots of small gaps. It's like humus is basically the, the term uh, for the soil. And it has a massive capacity for retaining soil. So when you have a drought, your soil, if amended with compost is much more resistant to drought. You can reduce your watering up to 80% by having a good amount of compost in your soil. Also, 
when flooding happens, it acts like a sponge. So it accepts and holds that uh, moisture. And it's also really good for erosion control if you've got some bare surfaces. And we're getting a little technical now, but like compost it. increases the structure of the soil and makes it kind of stick together more. Like maybe more complex? Yes, exactly. It makes it more complex and it, it makes it less uniform. So it doesn't just tumble away like sand would. It allows things to kind of stick together. And so it's really great for erosion control when water pelts down on it. It's great for steep embankments. You're saying it's good for drought and for erosion, which just makes me think of California mm -hmm. right now. And California's using compost. California and Texas are using compost massively. And I think the rest of the country can really take some cues from that behavior. Do you do sales as well? So do you approach different organizations or people in the community and tell them that you have this wonderful product? Yeah, that's actually a big part of my job is to find buyers for this stuff. You may not know this, but we were notorious here in Onondaga County for our lake. Onondaga Lake was, I think, <laughs> we were famous for being second most polluted lake in the country. A large cleanup effort has recently been underway over the last 10 years or so. Part of that cleanup effort has been a wildlife habitat restoration right along the lakeshore, and that habitat restoration has used thousands of cubic yards of our compost. Awesome. Yeah, so they found a real good use for it there. That's one big buyer. But also, it's great to have that, but we can't just be like, oh, compost is only worthwhile to fix the problems we've already made, right? Compost has value in gardening purposes. Compost has value on lawns as a top dressing. You don't have to fertilize your lawn. You can just put a top dressing of compost down once a year. It adds organic matter. It reduces diseases. Disease suppression happens with compost. Basically, all the beneficial microbes that made compost are vying for the same resources that detrimental diseases are in the soil. And I think a lot of times people don't understand that soil is not just a dead heap of brown stuff, but it's a living ecosystem of its own. And compost reintroduces beneficial microorganisms, and that can really be helpful if uh, detrimental microorganisms have taken over control. You've sold me. I feel like I should go and buy compost. <laughs> if only I had this much time to talk to everyone. When you're approaching people to ask them if they would like to buy this compost, is it possible for you to go to, say, government buildings or schools and get them on sort of a contract? For example, I know schools, their fields often get torn apart every year by all the little feet that are tearing apart the soccer fields, or they do landscaping every year, or municipal buildings are into landscaping every year, and there's new developments with big construction companies. So is that something that you do? Like, do you approach big organizations and sort of get them on that contract? Absolutely. Yeah, that's really what we're trying to focus on right now. And one of the biggest challenges in getting compost use to become a standard practice is simply fighting the change of this is what we've always done and this is what works and we're going to keep doing it. It's a big uphill battle to get large construction companies to change a practice. We've got something that works. It works in our financials. It produces a product that's fine. And we come in and say, hey, you could use compost instead. And they say, we may need specialized equipment for it. They don't know. They don't know if they do or they don't. They don't know how they're going to do it. But the benefits that are going to outweigh it, both financially, people can save money by switching to compost because it reduces the amount of material they need to buy. 
It's like buying concentrated dish detergent versus the dish detergent that's got all sorts of water in it, right? You're like, oh, I got this big volume of it and it was so cheap. Yeah, but you're paying for water mostly. So would that, in terms of dirt, mean you're paying for more like aggregate material, I guess you'd say, like more kind of rocky material? You're saying it's about 90% or so? Exactly, yeah. So a lot of companies are taking soils off and stripping off the soil of a site that they're working on. And a common practice is to strip off that soil, sell it off, and then buy more soil to put on it. (laughs) But the soil is cheap by the yard, right? Relatively cheap. But that's because it's just stony material. Mm-hmm. Uh, lower value stuff with very limited amounts of humus and organic material. Mm-hmm. So what we're trying to tell people is, hey, don't strip off that soil and send it away. Strip off that soil, leave it in a pile, and then put just two inches of compost down. It's more expensive per yard a little bit, but you don't have to buy nearly as much. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then you can still sell off that topsoil you stripped off and just replace it with compost. And then over time, you'd probably save on chemicals. Mm-hmm. and other means of fertilizing and taking care of it. Yeah, and, and transportation costs and water and all of these things. Reintroducing that organic matter into the soil is invaluable on a variety of levels. Mm-hmm. If you were to make a deal with a school, for example, where you came and collected all of their lunchtime food waste and then took it to your facility and then brought it back to increase the quality of their playing fields and their gardens. And one thing that I always think schools should really do, although it's weird because kids are out for summer, but having like a community garden or something there, I think would be really neat. So in a way, you could kind of close the loop. Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually something we're trying to do is get, especially those schools that are already giving us food scraps, getting them on board. But you've got different parties. The same people who said, let's divert the food scraps from the trash are not necessarily the same people who are saying, let's maintain the field. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That There's a, a there, disconnect. There's a dis- the grounds managers are, are in charge of the field and they have to say, yeah, this is what we're going to put on our grounds. We'll put compost down or we're going to stick to our fertilizer program. They're making those decisions, and that's separate from the decision-making process and the food scrap diversion. So it's, it's a lot of communication. It's really a lot of building trust that compost really will do the job that they want and that it will not be disruptive to their operations. Absolutely. Yeah, if you're a contractor and you're building homes, it might not be the focus. And I find that more and more these days with building new homes, the homes look great, but the area around it doesn't. Um, The yards are getting smaller and smaller and there's no trees. So when you build a development, you'll come and you'll just knock down all the trees, which breaks my heart. And then you build this street with houses and nothing really around it. But then if you go to houses that are like 50 years old, you'll get these beautiful trees and these beautiful yards. And there is a disconnect with a lot of people that just don't think about that finished outside product. It's like an afterthought. Yeah, having a holistic view on the project you do and not just looking at it as, you know, financial instrument. I just need to spring up this house, put some sort of sod down and walk away before I'm liable for the grass not working anymore. And you're lucky if you get a bush. You know, the nurseries are are on to compost. They get it. They're in charge of the health of these plants. They understand it. The disconnect is sometimes between the people who just need to buy the product from the nursery. So do you actually sell the compost to nurseries? Yeah. Yep. But then you'd need sort of almost an educator there, or at least if you're in the education process of it, if you educated the people at the nursery, then they hopefully would pass on the education right. when someone's coming to buy soil. Yeah, that's yeah, that's what we're hoping to do. And that's what we're working towards is, is just educating a community to understand that compost is a viable option. It's not something from our 
turn of the 20th century practice. It is an all-the-time natural function that is really beneficial to all living organisms. Mm -hmm. And you can try to technologically enhance your way into anything, but all technological innovations are going to have drawbacks, and we start seeing them. Where we see some of that is algal blooms. Mm -hmm. You watch people put down immense fertilizers. Yes. And then you get toxic algal blooms. We just had one over here in Skinny Atlas Lake, which is a drinking supply for the city of Syracuse. We have those issues as well with farmers' fields running off into the Bay of Quinney. So both of our countries have the same issues with runoff going into the lakes. We share the lake. So if Canada's dumping things in the lake, you guys are going to experience that and vice versa. Yeah, it's, it's shared resources. It's all shared resources. And if compost were put down... If people understood that the compost, A, would reduce the runoff just in general, right? It slows the, the flow of water through soil. And B, it replaces some of the need or potentially all of it for fertilizing the soil. Well, you can really reduce these algal blooms simply by widespread use of compost. It's just a matter of getting that practice to become conventional again. Mm-hmm. You say again, do you know anything about the history of composting or what people used to do before we just put everything in a green garbage bag and put it at the curb. Well, I think prior to the green revolution, the so-called green revolution that happened somewhere around the 60s, where chemical, I call them chemical fertilizers, uh, synthetic fertilizers or uh, mined fertilizers, before all of that, compost and and putting manure on fields and, and putting composted materials on fields was just what they did. It was mm. just it was just how this stuff was dealt with. Yeah, that's how we do it on our garden. So we have two horses, and they produce way more manure than we need for our massive garden. We have a huge garden, and we get the most beautiful berries and tomatoes and lettuce and all sorts of things, and it's an organic way of doing it. We've never, ever put any sort of chemical on our garden, and the soil is still going strong. And I kind of grew up in this farm area, and I know one of the farms at one point used night soil. I don't know if you know what night soil is. I've never heard of it, no. So it's a friendly term for like human waste, which Uh, I would not recommend now because we know that certain things get through the waste treatment system. So we're talking about opiates and birth control mm -hmm. and things like that. So I personally think night soil would be a bad idea, but it was something that was used. That was back probably in the early 90s. And I would assume that that might have been used back in the day. Yeah, it could have been. Yeah, it typically comes from wastewater treatment plants. Mm-hmm. We call them, we just call it biosolids. That's that's the industry term for what comes out of a wastewater treatment plant. Some people are able to compost biosolids down. However, I'd like to clarify that okra's compost does not accept biosolids. Mm-hmm. Our compost site is rated to accept about 9,600 tons per year of uh, food scraps. We produce significantly more than that in the county. So if we were to try to get municipal on board, before we would try to do that is try to get more of the industrial food waste. Grocery stores. Exactly. And would that include like big restaurants? Restaurants, if we could get rest, more restaurants. We do have restaurants here that divert their food scraps. Awesome. But getting more restaurants on board, getting more institutions. I said indus- industrial, but I meant institutional. You know, nursing homes. We do have a few hospitals on board already giving us the food scraps. But all these places that produce massive amounts of food for the public are probably better starting points. And then as we get that ramped up, moving towards municipal or home-based be the final stretch. Do you know what's interesting about that is up in Canada where we do the municipal curbside pickup, I don't know if we do those big places. (laughs) 
So I'm really happy because I think that you have a green job. And something that I worry about in this whole zero waste movement, I worry about taking people's jobs away. So for example, if everybody all of a sudden is like, yes, let's try to strive for zero waste. What happens to, you know, the 200 people that work at a water bottling plant? Or there's a plant in my town that makes maxi pads and there's alternatives like you can use cloth pads or diva cups and all of a sudden you don't need those industrially produced chemical laden things that people have to make and then all of a sudden like 100 jobs are lost so this is something that i worry about i really like to speak with people like you dale because you have a really green job <laughs> yeah it is it's a very green job i'm really grateful to have this job and and I, I get your concern actually but one thing i think about jobs is that jobs are solutions to problems and as long as we have problems we will have jobs for people and i think i think we have just a myriad of environmental challenges ahead of us and if we have a workforce that needs jobs we have plenty of environmental problems for them to take care of so hopefully that in that sector is able to grow as we shift away from some of the manufacturing jobs that people have well that just warms my heart that's a <laughs> really good way of looking at it. I mean, we have accountants. Exactly. And, and they're, they're yes. necessary totally. <laughs> for our organization. And, and that to me is a totally green job. Yeah. They're working toward a common goal that is totally green. All of those jobs count and are something that I think people can be very proud of. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. I think everyone at our organization is very proud to work for Okra. Oh, that's so great. That's really nice. Do you try to reduce your, your waste? I do. I do try to. And, and you know what? It's not easy. I I recognize that. It's easy to do the conventional thing, to go to the grocery store and just have them put my groceries in the plastic bag because I forgot my reusable bag, right? I go to the coffee shop and I have learned, because it's important to me, to ask for my coffee in a mug because if I don't specify that, even if I say it's for here, sometimes I get it in a paper cup. And it's because it's easier for the coffee shop staff to not have to clean that mug and just put it in the trash. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, I, I take the steps, but I do recognize that it's difficult, or rather, it's much easier to just continue to do the conventional thing. And I think where all this stuff came from is that need or that desire to make things easier and to make everybody's life easier. So we've reached this point where it's pretty easy to go around and feed yourself, basically. Right, yeah. And you don't have to really think about it. And hopefully, industry leaders will make it easier for consumers to purchase things with less waste. That's my hope. Yeah, absolutely. You know, an unfortunate thing that we face that a lot of our schools are trying to save money. Our, you know, our budgets are always strapped for schools. It's crazy, right? But one of the ways they try to cut corners is the high cost of labor. And a lot of schools here have done away with their kitchen cleaning staff. We don't have dishwashers. We don't have dishwashing equipment. They've replaced it with disposable trays. Like, what kind of a message is that that we're sending to our kids to use mm-hmm. disposable materials because mm-hmm. it's cheaper than paying people? Yep. They did that in Gatineau at my kid's school, and so I would never send him money. Yeah. And he got it. He was totally down with it. He knew why. Yeah. He didn't care. He would yeah. do whatever I sent him. And that's important, like connecting those dots. It's not just not giving you money. Why can't I do that, Mom? Explaining why. This is why, because it's wasteful. It's needlessly wasteful. We're paying money to be wasteful, and that doesn't fit. There's a story behind that one plastic fork, and it is a long story. And the climax of that story is so short. Just get a dishwasher, or some children have, like, ADHD. I didn't like to sit still, and I would have loved to get out of class for 10 minutes to go, like, on dishes duty. Because you would go with a friend, right? If, yeah, that's interesting. If you had yeah. to do it, I think it would maybe help with some of uh, the behavioral issues that we see a lot with children. 
children if you could just get them out of that stifling classroom and just go and have fun and play in the bubbles for like 10 minutes and wash some stuff. Yeah, it's all about the perception. Do you call it a chore? Then it's a chore. Do you call it a privilege to go do? Then it's a privilege. Totally. One thing that I've noticed about Syracuse is... The buildings are beautiful. There's a skating rink right downtown, which is really cool. Funky cafes, like kind of hipster areas to hang out in, which is right up my alley. So I love it. But I will say that I've seen straws everywhere. So it'd be super, super cool if somebody who's maybe listening in Syracuse wanted to start like strawless Syracuse campaign, like a hashtag or like stop sucking Syracuse or something like that. And maybe just get some of the restaurants involved, then they can just not serve straws anymore. I think it's a good idea to have some available just for people with medical conditions. But it's such an easy fix. Like you can just stop putting them in every drink and then you've reduced your landfill. Right. You know, it's one of those trained behaviors that Mm -hmm. we don't need straws. (laughs) You know, if you drank beer out of a straw, people would look at you like a crazy person. (laughs) So we have no trouble drinking out of a glass, right? Mm. So why are we drinking out of straws? I I love that idea, like stop sucking Syracuse. I I do think that straws are a real bellwether of superfluous plastic. Totally not necessary. We should stop having them. Well, cool. Thank you so much for talking to us. And it's a really interesting concept, outgoing compost. It's fun to feel good about recycling our stuff, but it's not recycled until it is being used again. And that's what's so important about you have to use the compost. You can't just put it in a pile. It's otherwise basically just an organic landfill. So we got to use the compost. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Laura. This week on my Countdown to Zero Waste, I did some research on home composting. I just moved to an area that actually doesn't collect municipal compost. My first choice was to do open compost in pallets, so put three pallets together and have an open pile. But we have a lot of critters in this area, so we decided against it. Instead, I found an old black barrel and repurposed it into a compost. This episode was recorded in studio at Syracuse Coworks at 201 East Jefferson Street in Syracuse, New York. They provide free snacks and coffee. The coffee is supplied by Coffee Mania, and the used grounds are actually donated to the 1610 Gifford Street Community Garden in Syracuse. The grounds are used there for compost. Thank you to Syracuse Coworks for the use of their studio. Change starts now. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast.